welcome to Supernatural Podcast, episode number 55 for Time is on My Side. The episode was written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Charles Beeson and originally aired in the U.S. on May 8, 2008. Let's move on to the synopsis with Kristen and Samantha. Recap for episode 3.15, Time is on My Side. Uh, The episode starts out as two plastic surgeons are walking outside the hospital at night. They part ways to go to their cars. One plastic surgeon is putting things in his trunk when someone comes up behind him and pushes him into the trunk. Next thing, he walks into a hospital with blood all over him. He's holding his side and the nurse tells him to move his hand. Something falls out and the scene ends with the nurse screaming. The next scene shows Sam and Dean interrogating a demon. Dean is dousing him in holy water, trying to get him to reveal who holds Dean's contract. The demon says that he won't tell them anything because there are worse punishments waiting for him in hell if he tells them. He says the only thing he's afraid of is the demon that holds Dean's contract. As Sam begins to exorcise him, the demon tells Dean that he'll see him in hell. After Dean buries the body of the formerly possessed man, Sam tells Dean about a new case. He said the article they read in the paper about the man whose liver fell out right in the ER had bloody fingerprints all over his body that weren't his. The fingerprints match a guy who died in 1981. Dean thinks it's the walking, killing dead, zombies. Even though Dean's excited about the zombies, he asks why Sam cares. Dean says, you've been on soul-saving detail for months now. We're three weeks out, and all of a sudden you want some hot zombie action? Sam says he's doing this for Dean because Dean has been gung-ho to hunt. Dean says, obviously I want to hunt some zombies. So Sam and Dean visit the doctor who did the autopsy on the dead plastic surgeon. The doctor says the only thing that was missing was the liver. Dean asks if there were any teeth marks around the liver. The doctor says it was removed surgically by a scalpel. Sam says maybe they're not after a zombie. Dean says maybe it's a zombie with skills. Dr. Quinn medicine zombie. (laughs) Sam says they should be looking for survivors. It's not a zombie. It's organ theft. Sam researches the medical methods used on the dead body. In true Sam and Dean fashion, Sam is researching while Dean's stuffing his face with a burger. Sam finds out the wounds were sewed up with silk, which was the suture of choice for early 19th century. Sam says the only way they could keep the wounds from getting infected was to use maggots. Dean says, dude, I'm eating. Sam explains that maggots eat bad tissue and leave good tissue, and that the dead man's body cavity was stuffed with maggots. Dean repeats, dude, I'm eating. Dean wonders why all of this sounds familiar, and Sam says it's because they've heard it before from Dad. Doc Benton was a real-life doctor who lived in New Hampshire. Sam says he was obsessed with alchemy, especially how to live forever. No one had heard from him for 20 years, and all of a sudden, people started showing up dead and missing an organ. Whatever he was doing to stay alive was working. Whenever parts would wear out, he'd replace them. But John hunted him down and cut out his heart. Sam guesses that he must have found himself a new one. Sam says... He's picky about where he sets up his lab. He needs to access fresh water because that's where he likes to dump the bile and intestines and fecal matter. Dean begins to dry heave. Sam says, lost your appetite yet? Dean looks at his burger and says, "Oh, baby, I can't stay mad at you. The next scene shows a man running at night. He stops to tie his shoe and someone comes up from behind and covers his mouth with a rag um, of chloroform. He wakes up tied to a work table. His heart monitor steadily increases as he realizes he doesn't know where he is. The doctor appears and begins to make an incision down his chest. He clamps the chest cavity open and takes the heart out. The man makes one final look before he flatlines. Bobby calls the boys. He said he finally has a beat on Bella. Rufus Turner, a former hunter, now a hermit, was visited by Bella. Bobby tells Dean that if he goes to see Rufus to bring a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue. Dean tells Sam to pack his stuff. They're going after Bella and the Colt. But Sam thinks that they should stay and finish the case. 
He says that Bella probably already sold the cult. Sam says that the case they're working on is going to save Dean, chasing immortality. Sam says he wants to find out Benton's secret so he can use it to save Dean. If he never dies, he can never go to hell and fulfill his deal. Dean says he will not let Sam wander around in the woods alone to hunt an organ-stealing freak. But Sam says, you're not going to let me? How are you going to stop me? Look, man, we're trying to do the same thing here. Before he walks out the door, Dean tells Sam to be careful. Dean visits the hermit ex-hunter, Rufus Turner. Dean asks Rufus if he knows where Bella is. He says, yes, he does, but he's not going to tell Dean. But Dean pulls out the bottle of scotch, and everything changes. Rufus asks Dean, you have three weeks left. Why are you wasting your time chasing that skinny, stuck-up English girl? Rufus says he knows the cult isn't going to save Dean. He says, even if you manage to scrape out of this, there'll be something else down the road. There ain't no happy ending. Folks like us, we all got it coming. He says, I'm what you've got to look forward to if you survive. Which you won't. Dean looks scared. Rufus tells Dean where Bella is. He took a print of her ear, it's just like fingerprinting in England, and got all the dirt on her. Meanwhile, Sam finds the doctor's lab. He steals the doctor's lab book, and he takes a look in the basement. He finds two victims, one already dead, the runner from earlier, and one still alive with maggots on her arms. She wakes up, and Sam tells her to be quiet. The doctor has come home, and he's making his way down the stairs. But Sam and the girl are able to escape through a window before the doctor sees them. Sam puts the girl in his rental car and gets in himself. The doctor breaks through the driver's side window and hits Sam's head against the steering wheel. Sam backs the car up and throws the doctor off to the side. Sam guns the car at full speed ahead and runs over the doctor. The doctor gets up and blood is coming from his eye. Bella enters her hotel room and Dean ambushes her. He asks her where the colt is and she says it's long gone by now. He doesn't believe her and he tells her not to move while he searches the room. He shoots just to the right of her head when she moves. She asks if he's going to kill her, and he says, Oh, yeah. She says, You're not the cold-blooded type. Dean reveals that Bella killed her parents when she was 14 years old. Flashback to when Bella was 14. She's crying, and her father comes in and slowly closes the door behind him. Bella says her parents were lovely people and that she killed them. Dean notices an herb above the door and decides not to kill Bella. He says, you're not worth it, and leaves. But Bella got a receipt out of Dean's pocket for his hotel. Dean calls Sam and admits that Bella was a goose chase. He says now that he doesn't have the cult, he's really screwed. Sam says, maybe not, that he found the doctor's lab book and it has the live forever formula. Sam says it's not black magic, just science. Sam thinks the formula could save Dean. But the doctor comes up behind Sam and puts anesthesia over his mouth. Sam is tied to the doctor's operating table. His eyes are taped open. The doctor says that he has never done something that he didn't have to do. He says this whole eternal life thing is very high maintenance. The doctor is still mad that John cut out his heart. Just when he is about to take Sam's eye out, Dean shoots him from behind. The doctor says, shoot all you want. Dean stabs the doctor in the heart. The doctor says, what part of immortality do you not understand? But Dean put chloroform on the knife, and the doctor is out. When the doctor awakes, he tries to plead for his life. The doctor says he knows what Dean needs. Sam is obviously eager and pulls Dean aside to talk. Sam urges Dean to think about it. Dean says no. It's black and white. Human, not human. The next time the doctor wakes up, he's in a chained cooler, and Sam and Dean bury him alive. Bella shows up at Sam and Dean's hotel room. She shoots the beds upon entering, but she finds out that there were just blow-up dolls in the boys' places. The hotel phone rings, and it's Dean. He says that he felt her hand in his pocket back in her room. He also says that he knows what that herb above her door was. It's a devil's shoestring, used to hold hellhounds at bay. He took another look at Bella's parents' obituary and noticed that they died ten years ago, today.
A demon did Bella's dirty work, because she made a deal. The demon that made Bella's deal also made Dean's deal. Her name is Lilith, and she holds every deal, says Bella. Dean asks why Bella is helping him, and she says, Because just maybe you can kill the bitch. Bella looks out the window and hears distant howls. The episode ends with the sound of hellhounds. I would give this episode a B+. I really enjoyed the baddie in the episode. The doctor was pretty freaky, and how he kept taking organs from people was just sick and wrong. But, in my mind, the episodes can't get an A if the boys are split up. Although they did have a good brother moment when they uh, parted. I like when the boys are together. I also would give this episode a B+. Mostly because the ending seemed kind of forced. I realized that there were some problems having Bella come back for the fourth season. But all of a sudden, oh my god, you made a deal, oh my god, she's dead. Didn't didn't do it for me. And leaving everything for that finale just makes me want to just rip people's heads off. This is Kristen. And this is Samantha. Thanks for listening to us. Bye. That was an excellent recap. Let's move on to theories and analysis and my discussion with Josh. Hi, this is Ellen. This is Josh. So what did you think of the episode? I loved it. I think the season's just getting better. The best thing was the timeline. We find out Dean has three weeks left. Three weeks, which meant that the tension went way up. It was a really exciting episode. I didn't think it was overwhelming, even though they gave us a whole lot of stuff because I don't know if I'm just feeling generous these days or uh, or what it is <laughs> because of the writer's strike. I'm excited. I don't know what it is. We'll talk about some of that later. But I think in this case, it worked. It was a lot to absorb. And I think going back and watching it again, I'll feel differently. Like I might get more or I might, because I know what happens, be able to absorb a little bit more in, in places. But to me, it reminded me a lot of All Hell Breaks Loose Part 1 from last season. That's true. There was a lot going on in that episode as well, and it moved at a really fast pace, kind of like this one. Yep, and that one worked, and I think this one worked in a lot of ways. Not all, but a lot of ways. Well, I think you're right. I think getting into what I liked about it, um, what really pushed it was Dean's desperation. I think they did a really good job of demonstrating his increasing fear and frustration at facing a literal dead end. At the lengths he went to get his hands on the cult really made sense, because at this point, defending himself from the demons coming after him is probably his best bet. Yeah, and you know, I think they tied that part up really well. Like, we were trying to figure out why he was so desperate for this gun. Well, one, because it's pretty cool, it can kill anything. Right. But, like, there had to have been a reason that he would have, for, you know, forgo everything else to find this yeah. gun. So that really makes sense now, especially when you go through the whole Bella storyline at the end of the episode. Yes, and I think they really drove that home with the interrogation scene at the beginning with the demon, because when that demon says that there's going to be a welcoming party for Dean, you can just see the terror in his eyes, because that's a really scary thought. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all know that the Winchesters are they are infamous, Everybody knows the Winchesters, and they want them dead, especially Lilith. So for him to have a little welcoming party does not surprise me. Right. It's not, it's eternity, you know, it's not like they can just kill him and get it over with. It's going to be a really bad time for a long time. Oh, definitely. But the fact that Dean flat out refuses to become immortal, even though Sam's pushing him, even saying we'll both do it, even if it's temporary... Um, you know, Sam was totally blinded to the possible outcome, you know, that they would, I don't know, have to kill people, which is kind of against their nature. And Sam was even willing to do that because, you know, he wants to save his brother so badly. But Dean flat out said, no, I can't do that. I won't do it. I'm not going to be the one running into a blind theory this time. Sam, you can have that job. <laughs> but right. even though he only has three weeks left, he's still has that moral center. And one, he's absolutely scared of going to hell. But two, he doesn't want the alternative of what happened with Doc Benton. Right. Even if he has an out, he doesn't want that one. 
that was really in character with Dean and his opposition to all of that kind of evil and monsters and demons. He does not have a taste for that. And, I, you know, he's terrified of going to hell. He's terrified of becoming a demon. And I think that it's great that he stuck to his guns and decided not to cut to the chase early and become a monster before that. They lost all logic and reason, but at the same time, they didn't. You know, because they balance each other. And what's going to happen to Sam if Dean's not there anymore does not look pretty because Dean is becoming the moral center of the show. Not a good sign. Going along with that, I I thought it was really neat to see Sam and Dean each doing what they do best in an attempt to save Dean's life. Sam goes into research mode while Dean goes off with his guns blazing. Typical. Unfortunately, Dean fares a lot better than his little brother because Sam gets tied up again. You know, I wonder if Sam has something with uh, chains or that likes to be tied up. Is that like a personal preference? (laughs) Right. Oops, I got captured. (laughs) Please, Mr. Bad Guy, tie me up. (laughs) I mean, don't. Don't do it. Yeah, you know, Sam really, for being in sort of frenzy mode... It was kind of cool that he actually took the time and he was diligent. He even locked the doors on his SUV, you know, his rental. You know, it's like Sam is still very much Sam, even if he is sort of changing here and there. It was We saw some of the, the flashback to old Sam. But speaking of that rental, the name of the rental company, I think it's Lariat. It's L-A-R-I-A-T. Um, it was the name cleared for the rental company back in the days for X-Files. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of the generic car rental company that nobody has, so they're able, it was cleared for production for TV, and so they use that, and I just thought that was kind of cool. Another reference to the X-Files, we had two in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) There was that one, and then there was um, the Hunter, Stephen Williams, who played Rufus Turner, the guy who, you know, he got drunk with. Um and he was previously on the X-Files, and he worked in 21 Jump Street with Kim Manners. So uh-huh. it is a small world after all. Dean getting drunk with Mr. Johnny Walker was great. <laughs> I liked that scene a lot. It was well played by both of them, I think. And speaking of Dean well played, I thought it was very cool that he was so enthusiastic for zombie hunting. It's the one thing that could sidetrack him away from his quest to stay alive. Oh, I felt like Dean on that one. I was so excited to see some zombies. But honestly, Doc Benton was pretty close to a zombie. That's right. He may not have been technically a zombie, but he certainly wasn't alive in the normal way. And the makeup department did a really good job with him. He looked very pieced together. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, what they did with the blood and the, all the, the... Not the special effects, but kind of like the other little bits that they did to make it really real were really cool. But Doc Benton reminded me of Mordecai from Asylum in first season. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But his makeup looked better than Mordecai did. <laughs> yes, that's true. They had some good um, makeup and great effects, too. I mean, when they were about to cut out the heart and everything and pulling it out while it's still pumping. Yep. How about the eye? Oh, and the eye. <laughs> did you notice that? You know, I bet that was really Jared's eye. That wasn't like a stand-in because if you notice the rest of the episode, his eye was a little red. So he really did have his eye in that cup. <laughs> oh, he's all poking it. It's like when they were gonna when they ripped out his fingernail before and I know. almost pulled out Jensen's tooth. Poor boys. <laughs> Tied up. Have your eyes pulled out. That can't be fun. Yep, and you know, in the gross factor too, it had the. Open wounds and the maggots. Oh, the maggots. The maggots (laughs) were so on my like list because when I was a kid, I went to put the garbage out and there were maggots in the bottom of the garbage can. And ever since then, I have been really squeamish. Nothing freaks me out. Nothing makes me squeamish. Like, really, I have, like, the stomach of iron, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I love, like, really grisly horror stuff. But maggots? No, haha, not a chance. I started getting all squeamish. But that was so good. I was so glad. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, it was nice and gross. And the fact that they really did use maggots back in the day—that was kind of a, a realistic touch there. Well, I think the acting on the part of both boys was really good. We haven't seen a lot of strong acting from Sam, but I think in this one, especially with the little confrontation that they had. It was um, really well done. Sam was really 
really determined and you could see that and it came out really well in uh, in Jared's acting but Jensen's face was just priceless when you know it just kind of dropped when he found out that Sam wasn't going to go with him oh right it was so sad yeah it was great my favorite favorite Sam face was when uh, he got that look of determination on his face when he was going to run over Doc Benson yeah (laughs) I think that um my favorite part of the episode and the neatest part to me was the revelation that Bella had also made a deal with the demon. Yes. I didn't really expect that we would get any sort of backstory on Bella or any sort of story. I just figured she would be some girl who just didn't really care about anybody and was really out to make a dollar and, you know, kind of all the right. stuff we normally talked about. I always wondered how she got mixed up with hunters. Right. At the same time, I thought, well... You know, kind of like Bobby. He just had a run-in. He Somehow people get involved. But maybe she knew somebody who was a hunter and thought, ooh, that's a good way to make a buck. But I didn't really think too hard about it. But I loved right. what they did. I agree. I thought it was a great way of explaining her motivation for how she got into the business and all her occult wheelings and dealings. And it also... If you think about it now, you can look back and see all the little clues they had in past episodes where this might be the case. It ended up making her a lot more interesting to me. Yeah, I think the child abuse thing was definitely, it stayed with her character. Like, that would be a really big motivation for her. It would have been great to see that develop over a few episodes rather than kind of throw it all in one. With that said, I didn't really want to see all that much of Bella. (laughs) (laughs) So I uh, I still was on the fence about her, but she, you know, I just, now that she's gone, eh, whatever. But I do like the peril <laughs> that she had to Dean. I, I really like that. When you're, what was she, 14 when she did the deal? When you're that young, 10 years seems like forever. Right. And so at the time, I mean, that is pretty weird for a 14-year-old to make a deal with the demon. But, you know, she felt like she really didn't have a choice and that was a good way out. And it gave her 10 years. I think she did a really good job with her breakdown and her too late cry for help and and the eeriness of the sound of the hellhounds coming for her. It was very well done. And the fact that Dean tells her that he could have helped her if she'd come to him earlier. Right. And then where he's going to see her next. Yeah. Even after all that, he still would have helped her. People are kind of wondering why Bella disappeared so quickly. Like, why did they just up and make her leave? Well... Kripke said in an interview that he just couldn't afford to keep her with their budget. (laughs) So he had to cut her part. (laughs) So the whole season, they they were all excited about the fact that there would be these two new characters who would share some of the screen time so that the boys didn't have to work, you know, 16-hour days. And now they don't have enough budget to keep them. (laughs) Mm. Oh, sad. Or supernatural on their budget. I don't know about the fate of Kate Cassidy. Um, Ruby, we know that Bella's gone, and it's because of budget. (laughs) Should we have a moment of silence? (laughs) Yes, another moment of silence for poor departed Bella. It's hard to tell. And that's the end. Oh, I thought our moment was already done. (laughs) (laughs) So long for Bella. Okay. So long for Bella. And that's a nice segue into what we did not like about the episode. I didn't have so many things that I didn't like, but the couple things I did have really, really made me mad. Same here. And just out of the way, I enjoyed the episode, but I did feel like it was very stitched together. No pun intended, referring to the doctor, but it just felt kind of disjointed, like they were telling too many stories in one episode. Again, writer's strike. (laughs) Right. Probably a casualty of the writer's strike. No doubt. I bet that this stuff probably could have taken, what, three or four episodes? And they just wanted to throw it all in there because they really do want to get back on track with what their plan was for season four without also having to finish up season three. Right. I agree. So fast-paced, but just a little disjointed. Well, let's start at the top. How about that nurse? (laughs) I've never met a nurse like that. I don't think nurses would actually ever react that way. You know, presumably the guy had maggots in his stomach and his intestines might have been falling out, but she just started screaming like she'd never seen blood a day in her life. Like, (laughs) what's the deal? 
And I wish they had just shown us what she saw. That's true. I didn't even think about that, but it makes sense that a, a re- hopefully a real nurse would snap into action instead of standing there screaming. Yeah, she was like a teenage girl in a Jason movie. So Sam lied again. Bad Sam. Bad Sam. Bad Sam. Luring Dean into a hunt with zombies and withholding the truth from him. And me. I like zombies. That's right. But, you know. Rude. Yeah, what's up with that, Sam? But, you know, they're not going to find a way out if they keep lying to each other. No kidding. Such big liars. When did they become big liars? When did this happen? I think. They have always been gigantic liars, but not so much to each other until lately. Exactly. Speaking of bad Sam, I don't know. He seemed kind of dumb this episode because I didn't understand his whole plan about saving Dean by turning him into an immortal who must prey on the flesh of the living. I, I get that he's desperate to save his brother, but I wasn't. I didn't see the logic between keeping them immortal and keeping them out of hell. And maybe I'm just not understanding how things work in this universe, but is that going to keep the hellhounds away, the fact that he can't die? I don't know. I mean, there has to be a way to kill somebody who's immortal. Like, they probably had a way to kill Doc Benton, they just didn't get around to it because they have more important <laughs> things to do. So they just shoved right. him in a hole in the, wall, in the ground, which also bothered me, by the way. Um, why didn't they burn his bones? I know they ran him over and shot him and all yeah. that stuff, but if they take yeah. his organs out, won't he die? For real. Why didn't they tie him up and do something? Anyway, okay. You know, I thought it was almost cruel the way they did that. It was kind of like old school Egyptian killing. They just had to throw in some scarabies or something and get it over with. That's true. That didn't make sense either. I, and I don't know. The people in Crossroad Blues were alive when the demons came for them. Same with Bella. Mm-hmm. And even John, you know, in As I Lay Dying, I didn't assume the person had to be dead to be taken to hell. I don't understand Sam's logic behind the whole scheme to keep them alive. Yeah, I mean, I know he was saying that he just wanted to buy some time, so he wanted to become immortal so that they could buy a little bit of extra time. Isn't that kind of like a road that you'd turn down that you don't come back from? I just want to be immortal for a couple of days, <laughs> and then I'll go back to being regular. What? Yeah, that's all right. And plus, you know, the whole part about having to go around hack up living people for body parts. Isn't that kind of what they do all the time, is hunt people who do things like that? Exactly. It kind of sounds like evil Sam who's okay with sacrificing virgins. Well, it's like that whole discussion that um, Dean had with the, the under, with the Reaper in, uh, in My Time of Dying, um, oh, right. where he was saying how... She's like, well, how do you think vengeful spirits are made? And it's like he right. just never really thought about it that way. I think Sam had the same problem here. That's true. He just, He's being incredibly stupid. Yeah. How about the timeline? Should we talk about the timeline? Because that kind of leads into the Bella thing. Sam and Dean were in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is at the northern part of the state. And he's trying to get to Canaan, Vermont. Now... Pennsylvania and Vermont have quite a few states in between them. Right. What the heck were the writers thinking, putting him them in Vermont? Like, why would... That just didn't make any sense to me, because it would have taken Dean a couple days to drive there and back. And in the meantime, Sam was just hunting for cabins in the woods. Like, it wouldn't have taken him two days <laughs> to cover that little <laughs> bit of forest. <laughs> Obviously not, because Dean found him right away. So I know. I mean, he, he could have gone into like six cabins by now, but it wouldn't have taken him six days or three days or whatever. And Dean, well, okay, that just totally, totally threw me off what was going on. Oh, no kidding. You know, it just seems crazy that he got all the way there and all the way back in time and found the right cabin to save Sam just in the nick of time. Yeah. Totally unbelievable. Yes, and then Bella easily finds her way, thinking they'd still be there, even though she obviously had to drive just as far. Yeah. Part of what made the episode seem kind of choppy, stuck together. Yeah, and speaking of Bella following after them, I personally was not crazy about the whole incest rape flashbacks for Bella. I just thought they were kind of weirdly out of place. Not that I don't think she would turn into the type of person if she suffered that kind of thing. That's realistic, but I just don't think they needed that for her. I think they were trying to cover three episodes of stuff in one. 
So I thought, right. well, we'll just throw in these little flashbacks to explain, you know, not only explain the motivations, but to really give you an idea of what her motivations were like. So you could sympathize with her. Kripke said right. he was trying to redeem her. I think instead of redemption, what we got was like quick, cliche, shorthand way of building sympathy for someone most people were not sympathetic toward. Exactly. But I think that, to me, I think she would have worked better as an unsympathetic character. I liked the fact that she had these crazy motives. I mean, the demon thing is motive enough for her to be selfish and on the way to, you know, being this immoral wheeler-dealer type person. She didn't need the Law & Order SVU backstory suddenly tacked on to make her a better character. Yeah, I think Kripke fell flat on that one. To me, I think the actress did a really good job in the end. She could have, with her sarcastic line reading, when she talked about her parents, kind of hinted that maybe they deserved what they got. And then at the very end, when she was so scared and ready to, when she was about to face those hellhounds, that was eerie enough and desperate enough to not need that motivation there. All it did was make, make Dean seem more like a jerk. And... Silly writers. <laughs> Plus, it kind of seemed nice to have a character that didn't follow the typical route. I mean, she was this character that you expected her to become a good guy and hook up with the guys, and she never really did. And that kind of made her more dangerous and more mysterious than in a way that Ruby isn't. Exactly. That's actually what was good about Bella was that she had that layer of mystery behind her that you didn't know. Is she actually a good person? Is she not? Right. I think I probably would have rather heard gone out with us never knowing really the truth. Just knowing that she was she was out to save herself, you know, period. <laughs> well, the big thing in this episode was questions and speculation. Right. What's up with Lilith? Let's just say it like that. Why does she want Sam so badly? Is he powerful? Is it fear? What's the deal? No kidding. She just hate that guy for no reason. Maybe she has a crush on him. <laughs> Maybe she does. She's a fangirl. I don't know. That's It's very interesting to speculate on her. We've only seen her once, yes. but we've heard about her a lot yeah. now. And we know she's had some kind of interaction with Bella because she convinced her to steal the cult and try to kill Sam and Dean. Well, she's the one holding the contract. Right. You know, my big thought after this episode was... Could she be the one who brought Dean back in In My Time of Dying? Remember where Yellow Eye was saying, I can't bring him back, John, but I know somebody who can? Right. Maybe they work together. Maybe Yellow Eye is a, was a, like a, her superior. Maybe she was, or maybe they just are both top-notch demons, and they knew each other, and you know he called in a favor or something. That would be a very interesting take, because she didn't get involved until he was out of the picture, at least not that we know of. Yeah. So, and maybe maybe she was involved that whole time and she only stepped in because they offed the yellow die. Yeah, that could be. Or maybe because he was protecting Sam that she couldn't reach him, that he was maybe. protected from her. But the big question then would be, why did she agree with Dean? Because, well, we know she wasn't the one there. She, there was a crossroad demon there who made the deal with Dean. But why would they allow them to bring sam back if lilith wants sam dead so that's the question i have she wanted him dead all along yes why would she ever bring him back unless this way she can work dean against his brother so she has like a secret weapon well yeah wouldn't it be really easy for her to talk sam into trading places at this point Oh, easily. I bet anything. You know, so if she really wants Sam dead, then she could say, hey, yeah, I'll cancel the deal. All you have to do is die, you know? Yep. So then that, if this is true, that leads me to think or wonder how long ago did Bella make the new deal, you know, where she was supposed to kill Sam? Because back in Red Sky at Morning, she was definitely not a friend or an ally, but she wasn't trying to kill Sam. She never really tried to kill Sam. Well, I think she she must have had the deal to steal the cult and obviously that wasn't enough to do it yeah so she got the new deal to kill sam which i don't know why she thought that would work any better if lilith is willing to go back on her word demons lie <laughs> the first time. exactly 
So I guess she's just so desperate she's going to try anything. Yeah. Unless Ruby has something to do with it. Like, he's protecting Sam, and he doesn't know it. And the big question, of course, is, uh, is Dean toast? Is he really going to meet his end? Uh, I think, well, someday he will die. <laughs> right. <laughs> There was lots of talk with Rufus this episode about no happy endings. Yep. So is that foreshadowing, or are they just trying to scare us? Maybe he has some uh, backstory that he's not so happy with. I mean, obviously they can't permanently kill a major character. No. But the question is, are we going to find out how he gets out of the deal, and are we going to find out this season? And, you know, I've tried to replay every possible scenario in my head, and... Obviously, we just haven't been given enough because of this lovely little writer's strike we had. We're missing a lot of stuff, and um, we just can't even speculate. But I'm wondering if the boys are going to have a head-to-head battle, whether it's... I wonder if maybe something is going to draw some sort of line between them, if it's a demon or not, or... Because they have definitely on occasion butted heads, and as well as they get along, I think that could make for an interesting storyline if they... Have a big fight. Or it could totally ruin the show. I mean, come on. Sam ran away for a while and went to college. Oh, you're not talking about a season-long story? No, no. Okay. No, but if Lilith tries to maybe recruit Sam or somehow ends up taking Dean to hell and tries to use him as a pawn against Sam or some sort of confrontation between them, I think might be kind of a fun little mini story arc. If the two boys aren't in the Impala, at least every other episode, the fangirls are going to go crazy. That's true. <laughs> Kripke will have people petitioning at his door. Well, I, you know, I'm also confused about how this whole clause in Dean's contract works. When the Crossroads demon was talking to him, she said, like, if you even try to weasel your way out, Sam's going to drop dead. But it seems to me they've been doing nothing but trying for the last few episodes. So I guess, do they have to actually succeed for him to drop dead? (laughs) Seems kind of vague. You know, and we still don't know about Sam's powers. Oh, right. That might play a part, too. Interesting. (laughs) I wonder if we're ever going to get an answer about going back to (laughs) In My Time of Dying. Apparently a lot happened in that episode that keeps coming up. At least particularly today it has. Um, When John told Dean kind of in his farewell words, you know, that he, that Sam's going to turn evil and that he will have to kill him. Is it still going to happen? That whole mess was really, really hinted at the beginning of this season. And then it kind of, I don't know, Sam still was good Sam most of the time. So Mm -hmm. speculation about that kind of dropped off, but you never know. And they wouldn't make a big deal out of that and have most of season two talking about it if it didn't go somewhere. (laughs) Right, you'd hope. Angsty Sam from season two was a pain, a pain in the butt. And please let me say that torture of listening to Sam whine will pay off somewhere. <laughs> Reap some kind of reward. Right. Should we move on to quotes? Sure. Why don't you start? Uh, I thought it was pretty funny. Dean had a lot of throwaway lines, but I like his reference when he said, a zombie with skills, Dr. Quinn medicine zombie. Still thinking it was a zombie. Sam's still lying to him, but... Yeah, that's a good one. Yay, zombies! (laughs) (laughs) My favorite was, um, you know, on a very serious tone, where Dean said it's simple, black and white, human or non-human. See, what the doc is, is a freaking monster. I can't do it. I'd rather go to hell. That's right. It's something you'd think Sam would know from the beginning. Well, you'd think. Well, I also liked, in a more humorous tone, (laughs) when the doctor at the morgue says, so you're cops and morons? And Dean's all flustered. Excuse me? No. No, we're we're very smart. That's very convincing. (gasps) Exactly. Well, I think that's about it. Okay, let's move on to legends and references. Let's start with the legend of Doc Benton. Thomas Benton was born in Benton, New Hampshire, around the middle of the 18th century. An excellent student, by his late teens, he was attending medical school in Heidelberg, which at the time was a university of great renown. A bright and aspiring student there as well, he was soon introduced to one Professor Stockmeyer. Now, Professor Stockmeyer, while brilliant, was viewed as an eccentric by his colleagues. After his death in 1779, the professor left all of his belongings, including all of his research, to his young partner, Thomas Benton. 
Thomas Benton went on to graduate from medical school. Now, Dr. Benton, he lived for some time in London and Boston, but fled both after being accused of somehow being involved in a number of mysterious disappearances. Eventually, Dr. Benton returned to the town where he had spent his youth and established a successful medical practice. He practiced medicine for many years and gained the respect and love of the community. He never aged a single day. Years passed, and Dr. Benton's behavior grew more irregular. Benton's erratic actions led to the failure of his practice, and he lost the centricity he once held in the town. He aged suddenly, with his hair turning white and his skin wrinkling. Dr. Benton abruptly abandoned his fine house and moved to a shack outside of town. His only contact with the outside world was a monthly trip to buy food and other supplies. Or so it seemed. When a group of pranksters tried to scare Doc Benton late one evening, they were greeted by a vision out of a horror story. A crazed, withering hermit, barely more than a skeleton, bent over tables of bubbling tubes and wicked instruments. They ran, and the legend of Doc Benton was born. A short time later, a cow was found dead. The cause of death was a small red swelling, with a white pinprick in the middle behind the left ear. Next was a horse, and the marking was the same. When a local noticed that Dr. Benton was no longer visiting town every month, he visited the shack where the old hermit lived. Inside was Doc Benton with the same red swelling and white pinprick behind his left ear. Dead. What happens next is where the legend begins. All that is known for sure is that one night a family in town woke to the screams of its six-year-old child. She had been kidnapped. Four would-be rescuers chased a black, cloaked figure in the falling snow to the base of the headwall of Musalak. There they found an impossible sight. The black-cloaked figure carrying the child had ascended the unascendable headwall in the midst of a vicious snowstorm. To the horror of the men below, the figure whirled around and threw his victim into the air. She fell, screaming to her death. But who was the figure cloaked in black? All four witnesses agreed. It was none other than Thomas Benton. Doc Benton was never seen again, but is said he still roams the mountain and somehow possesses the key to eternal life. Haunted, surely. But eternal. Years passed and the tale grew in its retelling, resurging after incidents like an incident that occurred in 1860. A cable to the tip-top house of Mukulak's summit was cut by an unknown hand, and the logger that went out to look for the problem was found dead minutes after he ventured into the raging snowstorm. He had a red swelling with a white pinprick in the middle behind his left ear. Ask around. You may hear more recent stories. One is told by Evan Scow, who found an old print in the mud from a style of boots that were not worn anywhere on an old, unused trail near the summit of Musalak while hiking alone. There had been no tracks 15 minutes earlier. Look at the records and you will find evidence of the life of Thomas Benton as well as other, more sinister events. Much is known, much can be explained, but there is still much that remains unexplainable. At one time, Doc Benton did live. Does he still? This is from supernaturalfanwiki.wetpaint.com. Link will be in the show notes. Next, we have the Kidney Heist Urban Legend, and this is from scopes.com. It's by Barbara Mickelson. Folklorist Jan Harold Brunvend mentions in The Baby Train that he first heard this horrific story in early 1991. Very shortly thereafter, he was swamped by it coming in from every direction, told as happening in various large cities. In this earlier incarnation, friends discover the victim either in his blood-soaked hotel bed, on the floor, or propped up against the side of a building. It's only at the hospital that the grim truth of the missing organ becomes known. By 1995-96, a couple of interesting little twists were added to the basic story. The victim was now being left in a bathtub full of ice. The friend seemingly disappeared, and the if-you-want-to-live call-911 message became firmly woven into the fabric of this tale. The traveler was now clearly on his own, his fate sorely in his own hands. A much scarier story that way, don't you think? Various versions were posted all over the internet in the, in the mid-1990s, including business travelers in Las Vegas or New Orleans, and a college student in Texas. There is no 100% reliable way to pinpoint where an urban legend comes from. What, if any, true life events kick it off? In 1989, Reuters reported that a Turkish man was brought to Britain on the premise of receiving a job. In order to have the job, he would have to undergo medical evaluation. He said, They drove me to a building which I thought was a hotel. I know now it is the Humana. I had a meal, and they left, and I woke up in the morning. A woman wearing something like white like a nurse came in and after asking me to sign a document, returned with the syringe in her hand. I was told they were going to take some more blood from me. He said, 
The next thing he knew, he awoke in a room with bottles on the wall fixed with cables, and he had a very wide bandage around his waist, which was painful. This story turned out to be untrue. In fact, no person has yet to come forward and report a missing kidney, and the claim proved true. It might have been what kicked off the story of the unwary traveler, the one about a fellow who was lured back to his hotel room and the next day woke up with one less kidney than he had when he started out. As many urban legends, this one plays our fears. Fear of traveling to distant cities and thus being out of our element. Fear of being ill and desperate. And most of all, fear of becoming the victim of random crime. We picture that a man waking up at a bathtub filled with ice and we see ourselves in his place. Finally, we have Devil's Shoestring. It's a common name for several plants that grow in North America. When found as an ingredient in mojo hands made by African-American hoodoo doctors, the name refers to various species of viburnum, usually alder leaf viburnum or hobblebush, but sometimes the related species cramp bark or blackhaw. These plants are in the honeysuckle family and, and they grow in the woods. The roots of all three are used medically to treat cramps. All three species are more or less interchangeable medically and magically, as far as we know, but if you order cramp bark from a medical herb company, you'll likely get cut and sifted chunklets of root bark. And for hoodoo, you want the whole long root, so you'll probably have to order devil's shoestring from an occult supply company. The strings of devil's shoestrings are not string-like at all. Rather, they are long and flexible, sort of like rattan or honeysuckle vine, only they are roots, not canes. The big ones are smooth and thicker than pencils. The little ones are wiry and thin, like St. John's wart roots. In old oral histories of hoodoo, some folks called them twigs because they somewhat resemble sucker growth on a fruit tree, only without the leaf buds. Many spells call for nine pieces, so when buying, you should try to get nine pieces that match in size and length, no matter whether they're thick or thin. Devil's shoestrings are used for protection, to trip up the devil or hobble him so he can't get in a house. They are also carried for gambling luck and for job getting. Some folks drive them into the ground around the front door or place a bundle of them above the door lintel or mantelpiece. In past days, it was not uncommon for folks to wear an ankle bracelet made with nine pieces of devil's shoestring and a silver dime to prevent being poisoned through the feet by stepping in goofer dust. It's from luckymojo.com slash devil shoestring. The link will be in the show notes. And finally, let's move to references. There are really only a couple. The episode title, Time on My Side, is a song by the Rolling Stones, which I played at the beginning of the episode. The second one I wanted to mention was Dean's quote, Zombie with skills, Dr. Quinn, medicine zombie. Jane Seymour, who played Dr. Quinn, also played Genevieve Teague, the mother of Jensen's character Jason Teague on Smallville. There was not any music in this episode, but the song of the night tonight is Waiting for You by Running Still. Check out the website at runningstillmusic.com. The song is brought to you tonight by the Pod Show Podsafe Music Network. Enjoy. There's not a lot more that I could say to you. I've been running around in circles searching for a point of view and all those moments that seemed slow when we met Are faster now it seems But I can still hear what you're saying And I am waiting for you I am waiting for Wait a minute and hang on to me 
That's it for this episode. The season finale episode will be up shortly. Thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to the Supernatural Podcast. You can visit my website at supernaturalpodcast.blogspot.com or send me an email at supernaturalpodcast at gmail.com. Please note that the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and not of the producers of Supernatural or the CW. Audio clips played on this podcast are property of the CW and no infringement is intended. Some of the music heard here is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com. <laughs>